This is a commonspace.eu podcast. From the city of The Hague, welcome to Global Europe Unpacked, a podcast about Europe's engagement with its neighborhood and the wider world. The beauty of a comprehensive approach to security is that there's something in it for everybody. Hello and welcome to Global Europe Unpacked, the podcast that looks at global trends affecting the European continent and the growing ambition for the EU to become a global or geopolitical power. I'm your host, Will Murray, and in today's episode, we're going to be looking at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or the OSCE. Multilateralism is at the heart of the EU's value system, and the OSCE is the quintessential multilateral security organization on the European continent, to which all 27 EU states are members. We're going to be talking about what this organization is and why it's important for European security, why it's considered to have been in crisis recently, and what can be done to ensure that it's as effective as possible going forward. To answer some of these questions, I'll be speaking to Dr. Walter Kemp, a senior fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, who has previously held a number of senior positions in the OSCE. Without further ado, let's see what he has to say. Walter, thanks a lot for joining me today. It's, uh, it's good to be speaking to you again. Thanks, Will. Nice to be on your show. So, so Walter, could you start by giving us a bit of background on, on where the OSCE came from and, and its history? Because I think it's particularly relevant when considering what the organization is today. Sure. So the OSCE stands for Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So to unpack that a little bit, I could focus on the four letters of OSCE. At the beginning, in the 1970s, there was a conference for security and cooperation in Europe. And this was a time when there wasn't too much trust between the Soviet Union and Western Europe. And this was an attempt to actually institutionalize the process of detente. And there was a Helsinki Final Act 45 years ago in 1975. And the idea was to build security through cooperation. And there were three different baskets. There was a a basket on political military aspects of security, a second on economic and environmental activities, and the third on the so-called human dimensions. And this created a very comprehensive view of security, which wasn't in many other organizations at that time. The E for Europe was a rather broad understanding of Europe because it wasn't only Western Europe or the European Union. It was the Balkans, the Caucasus, Central Asia, because this was all the republics of the Soviet Union at that time, plus Canada and the United States. So there were 35 countries in this conference that spread all across the Northern Hemisphere. Now, at the beginning, there were only a series of meetings. There was no institutions. There was uh, just an agreement that after every meeting, they would see each other again in a few months' time or even a few years' time. And this continued into the 1980s. And some people felt that when things changed in 1989-90, we wouldn't need this conference anymore. Unfortunately, that didn't last too long. Already by 1992, it was clear that with the collapse of the Soviet Union and instability in the uh, what was then still Yugoslavia, that you would need an organization that could provide early warning, deal with conflict situations. And so instead of getting rid of the CSCE, it became a proper organization and a regional arrangement of the United Nations. Okay, so, so whilst the focus of the initiative remained the same here, what did change when it became an organization? So the number of countries moved from 35 at the inception to 57 within about 15 years. Whereas in 1975, you could say that this was an organization to try and 
cement the status quo at that time, to make sure that there was peaceful coexistence between the communist bloc and Western Europe. In the early 1990s, this was very much an organization to deal with the process of post-communist transition. And that's why it was retooled. So having field activities, creating institutions to deal with the processes of post-communist uh, transition, an office on democratic institutions and human rights, a high commissioner of national minorities, later a representative on freedom of the media. But unfortunately, this dream of uh, United Europe from 1990 became a polarized situation between Russia and the West to the point that there was the conflict in Georgia, 2008, and obviously Ukraine then 2014. Ten years ago, the last time the OSCE he had a summit, which was in Astana, Kazakhstan, there was actually consensus among all 57 participating states of this organization to work towards uh, a vision of a European security community. But we know what happened after 2010 with uh, Ukraine and so on. And now the situation is highly polarized. Yeah. So um, in short, it's the world's biggest regional organization, 57 countries with a very comprehensive view of security based on cooperation. And what's particularly unique, sometimes difficult, is that decisions have to be taken by the by consensus. So no country can disagree. And when you have 57 countries, not all of whom are like-minded, that can be very difficult. On the other hand, it's now increasingly that uh, the EU countries will take common positions within the organization through the common foreign security policy. So you do have 27 countries that more or less speak with one voice. Okay, I mean, you mentioned the, the baskets there, and, and one of the most notable things about the Helsinki Final Act was, was this Principle uh, 7, um, which was on, on human rights and fundamental freedoms, which, which actually sat within the security dimension. And I guess this was the first time that signatories acknowledged that the treatment of citizens within, within their borders was, was of legitimate national concern. Uh, that, that's what made this thing so, so notable. Uh, is that fair to say? Yes, it's a good point, and it's something which made the CSCE unique. This fact that there was uh, a kind of human rights or human dimension element considered as integral to security. And there were 10 principles in the Helsinki Final Act, traditional elements like the non-use of force, uh, self-determination, inviability of borders and so on. But there was this added element that talked about how uh, governments treat their people and how that would be a kind of barometer of their relations with other states. And this, I think, um, is one of the more enduring and important aspects of the OSCE today, but is being rolled back a little bit in some countries that see that there's, uh, in their interpretation, external interference in their internal affairs, which they resent. But this is a commitment which is anchored in the OSCE. Well, yes, of course. I mean, from 1975, these baskets of principles were meant to be indivisible. But in the current situation, this belief seems to be creating a lot of problems. The OSCE's basic role is, of course, as a security organization for Europe and Eurasia. And due to these disagreements on this broad range of commitments, this role is not necessarily being fulfilled. So, so how do we square the circle on this? I think the problem is not with the principles or the commitments. The problem is that some governments have violated the principles or aren't living up to their commitments. And actually, the more those principles or commitments are broken, the more important they look. Because you can see that you can't have security, for example, without good governance. You can't have um, economic or environmental sustainability without 
security and justice. So the trend within international organizations outside of Europe, not least in the uh, United Nations with the Sustainable Development Goals, or what you uh, see through the priorities of the European Union, is precisely towards this interlinked nature of security, that you cannot only focus on political military aspects of security. You have to take into consideration governance, justice, rule of law, effective institutions, and increasingly environmental issues. So in that respect, the CSCE and the OSCE was way ahead of its time. And again, the fact that most of the 10 principles of the Helsinki Final Act have been broken in the last 15 years or so is not the fault of the principles. It's the fault of governments not implementing them. Okay, but I mean, could it not be said that it's just the case that the members are too different and, and thus now the, the OSCE is just being pulled in all directions? Um, I mean, the, the Russians have described the OSCE or what's happening within the OSCE before as the members west of Vienna imposing their will on the members east of Vienna. Are we ever going to be able to find agreement on these principles that, that were established in 1975? So the world is a different place than 45 years ago. This year showed us that, uh, in case there was any doubt. But I think the principles that were in that Helsinki Final Act endure. And the beauty of a comprehensive approach to security is that there's something in it for everybody. Some countries might prefer focusing on the political military aspects of security. Others like to focus on certain principles, others on the human dimension. Their critique of some countries east of Vienna in the... Uh, beginning of the 21st century, was that there was too much focus on the human dimension, that there were some countries west of Vienna that were lecturing to the countries east of Vienna, and this was resented. I think that should be kept in context because, as I mentioned, the OSCE was very much uh, a place for helping countries in the process of post-communist transition. What some countries didn't like uh, east of Vienna was occasionally the tone or what they said sometimes were double standards. And this was often the case in terms of election monitoring. The Russians criticized uh, the role of OSC monitors and others in these colored revolutions. That's now in the past. I think in the last few years, what we have seen is that there are global challenges to the OSCE area, which all participating states have an interest to work together on. So let's make a distinction between what's going on in the OSCE area what's going on outside. And I think this very much relates to the theme of your show on, on a global Europe, that you have challenges like migration. 2015, we saw the impact of that in the OSCE area. Violent extremism, terrorism, organized crime, climate change, and the impact on security, cyber threats, artificial intelligence. These are all issues that OSCE participating states have in common and that they're gonna to need to work together on, even the most powerful. So the challenge is, how do you get these 57 countries to work together on those issues where they have common interests without ignoring the other problems in the OSCE area, particularly the conflict situations? So uh, in Eastern Ukraine, now this year, the problem between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. The fact that these issues are interlinked and you take decisions by consensus means that it's very difficult to put square brackets around certain ideas and say, well, let's just forget about Eastern Ukraine now and only focus on working together to fight terrorism. That is very difficult to do. So 
this interlinked and, and comprehensive nature works both ways. On the one hand, it gives you a very uh, interlinked and holistic view of security. On the other hand, it sometimes makes it difficult to, to make progress and to take decisions. Yeah, I mean, on that note, actually, you, you said earlier that, that there is this consensus rule within the USCE. And now there is 57 members of the USCE. That means that there is uh, more, there's a higher likelihood of, of a veto coming in uh, from, from somewhere. So the, the organization has just emerged from, a, from an organizational crisis with, with a vacuum in its four main leadership positions for, for nearly half a year since, since July. So this was down to a failure by the 57 member states to reach an agreement on the extension of the mandates of firstly the OSCE Secretary General and then the three institutions, the Director of the Organization's Election Monitoring and Pro-Democracy Work, the OSCE Representative on Freedom of the Media and the OSCE High Commissioner on National Minorities. This has now been resolved, um, but where is the guarantee that this won't happen again in four years' time? And uh, how, does, how does this consensus rule affect the OSCE, and, and is it time to remove it? Well, a number of big questions all rolled into one. First <laughs> Sorry, of all, there's, there's no guarantee that we won't have this problem again in four years, yeah. because the fact that these four positions now come up all at once since uh, eight years ago means that some countries like to talk about a package deal which has a lot more variables than if you're looking at one post uh, at, at different times. So no guarantee that that won't happen again four years from now, but let's, let's hope not. As I mentioned, the CSCE began as a conference. So in the rules of procedure, when it said that decisions have to be taken on the basis of consensus, this was decisions taken on who would chair a meeting, the agreement on the agenda. It was all very procedural. And yet the consensus rule continued into the 1990s when the CSCE became an organization and had a much bigger budget, had more countries taking part, was running basically peace operations in some places, had institutions, and yet the same rules applied uh, for all these different operational things. And a lot of time is spent, particularly by the country that chairs the organization, on trying to get agreement on agendas or modalities for meetings mm -hmm. or the annual budget which usually spills you know six months into the next year and i think there could be some leverage for not taking certain decisions on consensus procedural issues but political issues i think you would always have to have on the basis of consensus not least because changing the rule would require unanimity <laughs> yeah. which um, okay. any country could say that they don't want to change the rule and and Let's be frank, it's also a strength of the organization that when these 57 countries can agree on something, none of them can say later on that they didn't uh, agree. And let me give you a concrete example. 2014, there was the beginning of the crisis uh, in and around Ukraine. And under the chairmanship of Switzerland, in an organization that includes Ukraine, the Russian Federation, the EU, United States, it was possible to have consensus on a decision to deploy OSCE monitors to eastern Ukraine. It was also possible to have a declaration in the Permanent Council on the downing of MH17. So with effective diplomacy, you can even get the parties, the warring parties, to agree. And that then makes it very easy for a secretariat and a chairmanship to deploy the necessary resources and political will later because all countries are on board. Yeah, so, so there's quite a high 
threshold for acceptance of something, but actually it does mean that the decision that's made carries a lot more weight once it has been agreed on. Exactly. Especially then decisions from summit meetings or ministerial meetings. These then become anchors for, for future decisions and actions. So, so you mentioned there the, the Swiss chairmanship and, and what they were able to achieve even under such difficult circumstances. Um, the Swedes are about to take over the chairmanship next year. And um, Sweden's a country that's got quite extensive diplomatic spread. It has experience in chairing the organization before. Um, and it's clearly putting a lot of effort into its preparations for this. Can Sweden help to turn a corner for the organization? Do, do you have hope that this chairmanship could actually be something very beneficial for the OSCE? Um, or do you think that they're going to struggle as much as, as others have previously? Sweden certainly has a strong diplomatic uh, core, as you mentioned. They've always been champions of the OSCE and take a very principled approach, uh, have a strong track record in promoting conflict prevention and women, peace and security, and other kind of core issues of the OSCE. They've also recently chaired the UN Security Council, and they have been preparing for this very thoroughly. The problem is that no country, even the most powerful like Germany a few years ago, can steer this organization on its own. And this is a collection of 57 countries where one country for 12 months has the political leadership, but decisions are still taken on the basis of consensus. So a chairmanship has to find the right kind of approaches and mechanisms to get everybody on board. And that is a very delicate balancing act. Albania did its best this year. They were unlucky with the, with the COVID pandemic. There wasn't even a ministerial in Tirana. It was a virtual meeting. Um, Sweden, I think, will have a number of advantages that Albania didn't have. But again, they will face many of the same challenges. But what's badly needed is the political buy-in of foreign ministers in particular, and not to leave one country, so next year Sweden, kind of exposed to do everything on behalf of the 56. That's not fair and it's not feasible. So this topic of buy-in by, by foreign ministers is actually something that you've written about before, and, and the fact that ambassadors of countries are playing the role in the OSCE that foreign ministers really should be playing. Could you go into a bit more detail on that? Yes, I would say that in the past few years, there's been a disconnect between informal ministerial meetings where foreign ministers come together and talk about the importance of security and cooperation working through the OSCE. And a lot of the discussions that you hear at the ambassadorial level or lower, which are very technical, sometimes with very narrow national or even personal agendas that completely undermine a more cooperative spirit. So I think for decisions that are taken at the ministerial level, it's important to have the ministers involved. Sometimes in the last few years, not too many foreign ministers turned up from ministerial level meetings or would leave before the decisions were actually taken. There was a leadership crisis this year because the four executive structures, so the three institutions plus the secretary general, all came up at the same time. And all of the negotiation processes were in Vienna at the level of ambassadors. Whereas foreign ministers later understood that there was a crisis, but by then it was too late. So my point is that, um, again, don't put too much pressure on the shoulders of a chairmanship, that it has to be a much more collegial and, and shared uh, leadership responsibility between as many 
OSCE participating states as possible. We've spoken about the value of the OSCE's broad approach to security, and you've also explained how the consensus rule on political issues has its benefits and, whether we like it or not, is here to stay. Is there anything else that you'd suggest that the OSCE does to make itself more efficient and to better perform its role in ensuring European and Eurasian security? The OSCE per se as an organization can't do that much. It's very much what the countries that take part in it want the organization to do. And I see a number of opportunities. First, there are mediation formats that involve the OSCE, which are dealing with some conflict situations in Europe that we used to call frozen or protracted conflicts, but unfortunately, a couple of them are now hot. Yeah. So Nagorno-Karabakh, what has been a protracted conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan that blew up this year, the crisis in eastern Ukraine, which most people assume is over, but it's now been going on for longer than the Second World War. And the OSCE has about 800 civilian monitors there monitoring the ceasefire. But also the uh, situation in Transnistria, where there's still no resolution to this protracted situation. I wouldn't call it a conflict. And the OSCE actually is a unique place where the parties, but also mediators from countries like the Russian Federation, France, United States, they're sitting together there and can work together in the OSCE to actually make peace. And I think the mediation frameworks themselves can be confidence-building measures to, to have a, one of the few entry points where the United States and the Russian Federation can talk to each other, for example. Also, we were talking earlier about some of these issues that all OSCE countries have in common. I think something has to be done to use this platform as a place to talk about these things. How do you deal more effectively with confidence building measures if there's a, a cyber attack? How do you reduce the risk of an incident or an accident that could have a knock-on effect and lead to a war? How do you uh, in, use these confidence and security building measures that were developed in the 1980s and 90s, but which are still relevant today? And if these instruments and tools aren't used, then countries are going to go around the OSCE and try and do things in smaller settings, bilaterally or through coalitions of the willing. And I don't think the OSCE would die, but it would slowly lose its relevance. And my concern from 2020, partly because of the COVID pandemic, but not completely, is that on issues like Belarus, Nagorno-Karabakh, instability in Kyrgyzstan, the OSCE was not very visible. And um, the organization needs the attention of parliamentarians, foreign ministers, civil society, and, and others to realize the potential that's there and actually to use it. And I hope, slowly, slowly, we're going to see a pendulum swing back towards countries realizing the self-interest in effective multilateralism and using organizations like the OSCE to work together, because most of these issues they can't deal with on their own. So, Walter, this has been a big year of, of anniversaries. Uh, it's obviously the 45th anniversary since the Helsinki Final Act was signed, as you mentioned. Where do you see the OSCE in the 50th anniversary of the Helsinki Final Act in 2025? I hope that between now and 2025, or maybe in that anniversary year, there would be a high-level meeting where OSC participating states reaffirm the principles that they agreed to in 1975 and 1990 in Paris, but interpreted them in the conditions of today, because many of the threats and challenges that were at that time are no longer around, but there are new ones which weren't anticipated then, in, including many of the transnational threats. Also, I think countries need to show that they think that Europe 
and order in Europe require a rules-based system that is anchored in those principles that they agreed on before. And it wouldn't take much to reaffirm them, but that would then have to be matched by real action to not only say this in words, but to reflect it in meaningful cooperation. So I would hope maybe 2025 is, is too late, that maybe even before then there could be another summit. There hasn't been one since 2010 in Astana, as I mentioned, but that there could be an opportunity where after the crisis in Ukraine, in the post-pandemic environment, there's a reaffirmation of how countries should take a more principled and cooperative approach to dealing with each other based on dialogue, shared principles, and the desire to actually have a more peaceful Europe. Walter, on that note, I'm going to finish our, our conversation here, but uh, thank you very, very much for providing your insights and, and your time, and, and hopefully we'll speak to you again sometime soon. Great. Thanks very much, Will, and good luck. So thanks again to Walter there for his time. He really is an authority on the subject of the OSCE, and I'm delighted that he was able to join us for this. So it was an interesting and, and even optimistic conversation about the organization. And, and it's amazing to think that the organization's approach to security through a broad and diverse cooperation and consideration for fundamental human rights was established 45 years ago, as, as this type of model is something that we've seen gain a lot of traction in recent years. It was also interesting to hear Walter's points on, on this consensus rule, which has received a lot of the blame for the organization's leadership crisis this year. He's right when he says it's here to stay and that in cases where agreements can be made, it actually strengthens the OSCE's ability to act and, and enforce things. From my perspective, Walter's message is very much that we need to concentrate less on how we can change the OSCE and more how we as member states can change our approach to the organization. It's time for a rejuvenated commitment to the OSCE and its values, backed up by real action. I mean, it's, it stands as a shining example of, even in the most divided situations, how countries can come to agreements on a broad range of principles. And if they could do this during the Cold War, then we can certainly do it now. So let's not allow this great achievement of multilateralism to fade into irrelevance. So that's us for, for 2020 in uh, Global Europe Unpacked. We'll be back in January and, and we hope you've enjoyed the series so far. As usual, if you're looking for more news, analysis and commentary on Europe and its neighbourhood, please do visit our website www.commonspace.eu. And if you can uh, subscribe if you're enjoying us or, or give us a five-star review, it does help us out and, and it will make sure that you never miss one of our episodes when we come back next year. So thank you very much, um, and we hope that 2021 will be a slightly more positive year than this one. Until then, thanks for listening. Global Europe Unpacked is a commonspace.eu podcast produced and recorded in The Hague, the Netherlands.